0: Chris Bryant is very good to see you very nice to have you on the 20 questions with podcast
1: Likewise thank you for having me
0: So you are an important person because you are the chair of the what well, you disc, you tell you tell us exactly what the formal name should be because people call it different things
1: I'm not sure about important self important maybe <laughs> which is maybe a different matter uh, I'm chair of the committee on standards in the house of commons and uh, it's a strange committee because everybody thinks Um, that we have the power to sort of launch investigations and all the rest of it, but we don't. What we do is we adjudicate on cases where the Parliamentary Commissioner for Standards believes that uh, an MP has broken the rules and we write the rules for the House of
0: Commons. It's also privileges, right? Standards and privileges.
1: So that's a separate committee. So there's the it used to be, to be fair, it used to be the Standards and Privileges Committee. But since 2013, it's been the Standards Committee and the Privileges Committee. And the Privileges Committee is slightly different because it can only consider things that have been referred to it by the whole house. And it only has seven MPs on it, whereas the Standards and uh, Standards Committee has those same seven MPs plus seven lay members of the public. So the difference between the two is that the Privileges Committee considered whether Boris Johnson had lied to Parliament, because that is a question of contempt of Parliament, whereas the Standards Committee decided whether Owen Paterson had committed, had been involved in paid lobbying, which is a breach of the Code of Conduct.
0: But you recused yourself, didn't you, from the Boris Johnson investigation? So does that mean that you sat on that committee, but not as the head of it?
1: No, it means that I took myself off the Privileges Committee completely so that somebody else could chair it, Harriet Harman, because I had said endlessly on, to anybody who ever asked me anything um, about it that I thought Boris Johnson had lied. So it was pretty difficult. I mean, I would have done my best to try and be fair and impartial, but I'd said so many times that I thought he'd lied, um, that I couldn't do that. But I stayed on as chair of the Standards Committee throughout all that period
0: what I meant was you'd recused yourself from the Privileges Committee, but you stayed on the Standards Committee. And in other words, you're the head of the Standards Committee, but you sometimes sit on the Privileges Committee.
1: Normally, the chair of the Standards Committee is the chair of the Privileges Committee. Now, what this is showing, this little bit of conversation, (laughs) is that Parliament is so complicated (laughs) that very few people understand it. It's not just complex, it's complicated because we have complicated
0: it. And this fits into your new book. Which is code of conduct? Why we need to fix Parliament
1: and how to do it? Indeed, because I mean, honestly, the number of different bodies that regulate MPs these days, and it doesn't—that doesn't make it better that there's a lot of different bodies. But there's the Independent Parliamentary Standards Authority, there's the Standards Committee, the Privileges Committee, the Speaker of the House of Commons, the Electoral Commission, the obviously the Law of the Land, the Ministerial Code. The advisory Com- committee on business appointments, plus several others, and and uh, and the co- and uh, the committee on standards in public life. So all of those things. I mean, it's like crazy paving, and it's one of the things I try to say in the book that I just think it's not fit for purpose. And each of the individual elements of this have grown up in response to a scandal. Oh, I've left out another one: the independent expert panel and the in- independent complaints and. Um, a grievance scheme, uh, which is there to look at sexual harassment and bullying cases which aren't dealt with by the Standards Committee. And if you're not confused now, <laughs> then you're not paying
0: attention. Well, we are technically still in the introduction because you were helping me with the introduction. So we haven't even asked. I haven't even asked you my first of the 20 questions. So we will obviously talk about that book. But first of all, in my first question, I just want to know what it's like being ginger, because I'm ginger and I've got little tiny bits of, well, you've got tiny bits of white cropping up on your temples and I've got quite a bit of white on my temples. Tell us what it has been like being a redheaded man, Chris. Uh,
1: Well, my parents actually put on my passport, heavily freckled on nose and cheeks, as a distinguishing feature when I was seven. And you know the closest I've ever got to a some uh, to a suntan is when the freckles join up. Uh, I love being ginger. I'm very proud of it. Um, and but you did, I did. You did get bullied at school about it. Or one did. The other side of it is I have skin that is designed for rain, not for sun. Um, as and I, as you probably know, had a a, a bad melanoma, stage three B melanoma on the back of my head a few years ago, and that is almost certainly because this kind of skin got burnt when we lived in Spain when I was a kid. And that's what sort of sits there waiting like an unexploded bomb.
0: What was that like going through the experience of having cancer? I had a a much lower grade skin cancer called a basal cell carcinoma. Mm. And I mean, when the doctor says that you've got cancer, even though mine was less serious than yours, significantly less serious, perhaps, I'm not an expert, of course, I mean, it's still quite a shocking moment. How, how, how did that whole process of dealing with cancer, confronting it, living with it, whatever, how did that affect you?
1: Well, um, I mean, I was very fortunate in, in many senses, but um, just briefly, the story, I'd spotted something on the back of my head, or I hadn't, my husband had spotted a thing on the back of my head because I'd had my hair cut very short for Christmas, a bit like yours is now. And so it's a bit more obvious. And uh, we didn't think anything about it um, until my birthday, January the 11th. I went to the doctor. I was driving past. I thought, you know what? I'll go and see the doctor about it. Amazingly, back then, you could still get an appointment with a GP on the day that you knocked knocked on the door. He sent me for emergency checkup with the dermatologist. She saw me five days later. Five days after that, she cut it out and, and looked very worried. And two weeks after that, I got the results. And it was a stage 3B. And when I went in to see her with... Jared, my husband, I said, you know, what are my chances? And she said, of living. I said, or of dying. And she said, 40% chance of living a year. And that's less than 50%, which therefore felt very bad. And I just was, I mean, I I thought I was going to die. I was certain I was going to die. And I felt terrified and angry and uh, all sorts of other things. Weirdly, I didn't feel ill. This is the strangest bit. I mean, it's just a little lump on the back of my head that had to be cut out. They then cut another bigger chunk out, and I I had no choice but to talk about it because it's not like it was on my leg, hidden by my trousers. It was like I had this enormous sort of thing stapled to the back of my head for the best part of four months. So when I went round Parliament, everybody could see I looked like Frankenstein's monster. But and why I say I'm really fortunate is two weeks before... I got that diagnosis of a stage three B melanoma, which means that it had set up a little satellite next door to it. So it was metastasizing. It was traveling. Two weeks before I'd gone to see the doctor, they had just licensed new medicines, which took my chances of living from 40 percent to 90 percent. And four years later, I'm fine.
0: That's incredible.
1: Yeah. And though, and the drugs I, I had then, I was told, cost something in the region of £110,000 a year. So I will never, ever, ever balk at paying taxes.
0: The drugs, not, the, not your personal drugs, the drugs that you use, for your, my your, pers- your dosage cost £110,000? Yeah. Wow. So that is quite... And an sometimes
1: obli- I wonder about the NHS, whether we shouldn't just tell people what it would have cost if you'd had to pay it. Because then sometimes I think we undervalue the NHS. That's my point, I suppose.
0: Tell us the difference between growing up as a boy who was gay and being a young adult as a, a gay man at times, which were very, very different from those of today, and now being married to your husband. Like w- As a gay man, how enormous is that shift? And obviously, there's still work to be done, and obviously homophobia still exists in our society, but how big a change has that been through your eyes?
1: Well, when I was born, it was a criminal offence, homosexuality, and all through my time at university, it was a criminal offence because the age of consent was 21. So sometimes people ask me whether I've ever broken the law and I say, yeah, once or twice, maybe, (laughs) Um, or a bit more. Um, But uh, it took me quite a long time to work out that I was gay. It wasn't really till I was about 24 that I'd kind of sussed it all. And I don't know whether that was religion or the fact that I liked girls uh, or just me persuading myself. I didn't particularly feel guilty about it, but it, it, it was just, it took me quite a long time to sort it out until I was 24. But then the the working assumption was always then that you would be lonely if you were gay in old age in particular. And and I remember my mother, well, my mother, when I told her she was going to stay with me, she said she should always have known because I walk so funny. I don't know what that meant. But anyway, when I tell other people, they will laugh because they say, oh, yeah, you do walk a bit funny. Um, but I don't think that's anything to do with my sexuality. And, you know, in the time that I, I, I mean, attitudes in Parliament have completely changed as well. I remember one of the doorkeepers in Parliament calling me a puff when I first arrived. Now, if if they did that today, they will be out on their ear, you know, and they wouldn't anyway. But so so the, the world has changed enormously and thank goodness I do worry though I feel more anxious and nervous about where the, all of this is going than I did 3 or 4 years ago. I don't think Rishi Sunak would have voted for gay marriage or even you know
0: civil partnerships. He's not here to rebut that, but I'll try and get him on the podcast, Chris. <laughs> You mentioned religion, and you were actually, I mean, not everyone will know this. In fact, I didn't know this until I started researching for this interview, but you were a priest. Uh,
1: Yeah, well, theoretically, I am a priest forever after the Order of Melchizedek. That's what they say in the service. Uh, Yes, I was ordained uh, deacon uh, uh, on the 14th of December 1986, and then priest on the 6th of December 1987 in the Church of England. Uh, And I served... As curate at All Saints, High Wycombe, and then as youth chaplain for the diocese of Peterborough for the best part of five and a half years, something like that.
0: Why did you stop that? I mean, I I I take your point about being a priest forever, but why why did you swap being a priest for being a politician?
1: Well, it didn't quite work as immediately at that. I mean, what happened? What I mean, why did I become a priest at all? Um, A because uh, my my childhood, my family life was pretty miserable in my teenage years. Mum was alcoholic and. That eventually killed her. Mum and dad split up. It was all quite difficult, traumatic and and, and horrible for them and, and not much fun for me and my brother. But uh, the people who's helped me and supported me during that time were all involved in the church. They were Christian. and And maybe a bit of a lack of my father made me want to be a father to others. But I also wanted to change the world. I was always quite passionate about how things should be and what was right and what was wrong. And that's not to say that I'm a particularly good person. It's just that I was... I, I that sense of fairness, I think, is is really quite strong in me. Um, but then the Church of England, I, I worked out round about. I was ordained when I was 24. I worked out that I was gay when I was 24. And then previously the church had always been don't ask, don't tell. And now it was, oh, no, everybody wants to know everything about everybody. Oh, and by the way, we don't like the gays. So then I thought, well, I could stay in the church, but I don't want to end up being a bitter, twisted old man who's not been able to have a partner only staying on in the job because it, I'm in a tired cottage and um so i it it's more honest to go off and do something else but and and my hope was to become an m p by the age of forty i left by the i left when i was twenty nine and I became an m p when i was thirty nine
0: and you've been an m p for over twenty years now, something else that people might not know about you is that you were a conservative weren't you at university at oxford
1: yeah i i mean um i think my my dad is certainly on the right. I mean, I think that's partly why we went to live in Spain under Franco. Not many British people did. And, you know, I went to a public school and everybody there was a conservative. Uh, William Hague tells everybody that I wore a cravat at Oxford. I'm not sure that this is true, um, but it, um, I might have worn one once. But I, I, I And I wore a jacket and a tie most of the time. So I was quite a conservative with a small C person, and um, and there, and and I had a friend at one college who wanted to stand, who wanted to beat William Hague, who was from the right of the Conservative Party, for the chairmanship of the Oxford University Conservative Association. So I took part in his campaign. We beat William Hague, and and then I kind of thought, I'm not really a conservative. I don't I I don't subscribe to their big policies. And by the time I left Oxford, I was. Well, on the way to joining the Labour
0: Party. Were you expected to get into Oxford?
1: I don't think so. Uh, well, it was odd because um, in those days, most people applied for Oxford w- what was called seventh term. So you, uh, once you'd finished your A-levels, you did an extra term studying for Oxbridge and then you went the following year. Now, I couldn't afford to do that because of the family situation, which was such a mess. So I did what was called fourth term Oxbridge, which was very unusual and and i uh i did i expect to get in i don't think so my mum had a degree she'd studied art at the glasgow school of art but and my, and her mother was a gp but other than that nobody else in the family had been to university
0: i was asked on television a couple of days ago whether i could name three policies under keir starmer's leadership of the labour party that would that i that would make me want to vote labour at the next election and if you go into delve into social media, if you, if you spend time on Twitter, a lot of the people sort of, I suppose who would identify themselves as on the left in some form, spend a lot of their time criticising the Conservatives, holding the government to account. What does it mean to be a Labour MP today? What, what, what are the positive reasons to vote for your party at the next general election?
1: So let me do, I will answer directly, but just one stage before that, which I think is important, Keir Starmer set himself three tasks. First of all, detoxify the Labour Party. Secondly, prosecute the case against the Conservative government. And thirdly, then, offer nuggets of hope for how we could be a better government. Um, so we, we've definitely done a lot of the first, we've done a lot of the second, and we're just in the foothills of doing the third, I will be my argument. So for me, I think one of the key things is, and this is one of the things I say in my book endlessly, and I hope my book will contribute towards this process, We need to change the way we do Parliament. I mean lots of different elements. We need to tackle the issue of lying in Parliament, we've got to do uh, stuff about who gets to decide who gets into Parliament such as in the House of Lords, we've got to do reform of the whole system um, so that people can have trust in it and I believe that Keir will, we haven't formally laid out what we're going to do but my book might be helpful in that manifesto for changing the way we do politics Secondly, I think uh, Keir Keir was the first person to bang on about inflation in the UK and the problem that it was for people. When Boris Johnson was casually saying, I don't don't really care, um, everybody's getting far too overexcited about uh, inflation. And I think that Keir has a much better understanding of how ordinary people's lives work. The difficult bit now, when we're still probably 18 months away from a general election, is how do you write the, you know, on a piece of paper, what, what? what you would do financially in taxation and all the rest and spending on all the rest of it, when you don't know what the figures are going to be like. Um, And then the third thing for me is about um, the NHS. There's a sharp divide, I think, between the two parties. And it's not funnily enough about whether you should use the private sector at all. My view is you should be completely and utterly pragmatic. You should use all the capacity there is available in the UK to get all those get all those operations that have been waiting for two years done. I think the divide is about whether you really believe in its long term existence. And the Labour Party does. And I don't think the Conservatives do really.
0: Do you find Keir Starmer an inspiring leader?
1: Yes, I do. I I I didn't he wasn't my first choice. I wanted Jess Phillips. But uh that didn't that was, that was not to be, that didn't really happen. And but honestly, you know, people say, well, Nobody was ever inspired by Clement Attlee. You know, everybody used to do jokes about him having no personality and his speeches being boring and all the rest of it. But many, most people reckon he was one of the best prime ministers we've ever had. And I kind of think Keir's in maybe in that kind of category. And, uh, you know, we've seen what big personalities can do in politics. They're pretty rubbish. And on the whole, historically, Britain has tended to be rather sceptical about demagogues and populists. And so... So, so that's why I find him inspiring, but in a different way from, you know, somebody who... who you know, he's not Martin Luther King. Um, uh, he's not going to climb up the mountain and get everybody leading him and, and making some grand speech. But I would be sceptical of that kind of leadership in this kind of moment anyway.
0: Explain to me this, the difference between politicians lying and politicians being evasive in the way that they answer a question. So there's an extent to which our party political system relies on towing the party line. And so if you're given an awkward question, and you don't want to lie about it, a politician might try and dissemble or deflect or somehow get round answering it in the most straightforward way. Is there in your mind a difference between straightforwardly lying and doing something like what I've just described?
1: There's a whole chapter in the book about this, about this whole thing. So I'll try to condense my What what, what I think about it. I mean, look, there there are blatant lies sometimes, flat out lies, deliberate lies, attempts to deceive uh, so as to protect, you know, to protect your own skin. We all know that that is the most culpable of all. Sometimes then there are lies to protect other people. So the classic instance is somebody's. I said, I remember asking a friend, could you, is it ever right to lie? And he said, is Anne Frank in the attic? So, yes, of course, if you were asked by a Gestapo officer, you would lie and you'd be right to lie. So and one of the things I examine a bit in the book is the doctrine of collective responsibility. Difficult to get round because you don't want a government to be a complete and utter mess with everybody saying different things, you know, every day. But you also want to sort of believe that if somebody thinks something is really bad and they completely disagree with the policy, which is in their portfolio, then they'll resign. Um, and the honourable resignation is a good thing. But at the same time, you don't want somebody wandering around all the time saying, oh, I'm going to resign tomorrow, oh, I'm going to resign next week, because that just isn't a way of running a government. And I remember I wrote a biography of Stafford Cripps many years ago, and Stafford Cripps, who prided himself on his ethical stance in politics, he went to the States to devalue the pound against the dollar. And on the way back uh, with with Ernest Bevan, and uh, when he got back to UK, he was asked by a journalist, "Are you devaluing the pound?" And he said, "No, because he had to. Otherwise, he would have effectively devalued it by saying it there and then." So, I so there are difficult circumstances, but where I, what I, I think we should have a new rule in Parliament, which is that if you are required by the UK Statistics Authority to correct the record, and you refuse to do so, you are then uh, breaching the code of conduct. And you can be chucked out,
0: what is the biggest takeaway in Was your... that
1: evasive by
0: the way <laughs> no it was, it was a very interesting it was a very interesting answer. What is the biggest takeaway from the author's perspective, from your perspective in code of conduct? in other words, what is the most fundamental change, the most pressing change? perhaps you can answer it in any way you like with whatever your criteria, but what what is the biggest takeaway from code of conduct from the book?
1: that we need a new set of politicians who have have not been tainted by the blight that we've had in the last few years. This is, I think this is the worst parliament in our history. 22, or maybe it's 23 now, actually, now I think about it, 23 MPs have been suspended either for a day or more or have left parliament under a cloud in this parliament, which is by far the biggest in any parliament in our history. And the only way you're going to change that is by changing some of the personnel um the next thing you need to do is you need to completely tear up the rule book on how much power government has you you won't you you'll, you, you'll you, you maybe you you will know this but many others won't once you become prime minister you and only you can appoint all the government ministers decide when parliament sits decide if parliament sits decide what parliament debates and how long it debates it for def- decide what amendments can be tabled What amendments can't be tabled? Decide every single penny of expenditure and taxation. And you can even decide how long Parliament goes on holiday. And this is an extraordinary agglomeration of power. And it doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. In other parliaments, the Parliament gets to decide what's on the order paper tomorrow. I'll give you an instance of why this matters. We've just had the illegal um, migration bill. I think a load of nonsense, terrible piece of legislation. We fought against it all the way through the House of Commons. Uh, and in the House of Lords. In the House of Commons, for its second reading debate, which is the first main debate, it was given just over two hours' debate. Two hours' debate! And then, uh, for the National Security Bill, when the government tabled more amendments, or or longer, uh, more pages of amendments than were actually in the bill itself, we had, I think, three hours to debate all those amendments. So we don't do our job properly. We, and that's why we end up with rubbish legislation and we, and we govern badly.
0: Hang on, does the prime minister have, for example, the power over uh, the power of veto on private members' bills? Because I mean, you you brought in a very uh, you, uh, a significant private members' bill, didn't you? That got passed into law about attacks on emergency service workers. Is that right? Is, have I put that right?
1: That's right. Yes, um, I managed to persuade the government to support my um, uh, emergency workers assaults uh, bill to stop um, assaults on emergency workers. But and that was when we had a hung parliament. Um, So it was a bit more difficult for them to oppose it um, in 2018. But yes. So so what happens with private members, Bill, you you introduce a bill. Let's say there's a ballot. Let's say you come out in the top 10. You get to bring forward your bill on a Friday morning. But what the government can do is they can just keep on talking all the way through to 230 and then the bill dies. They don't even have to oppose it. They don't even have to vote against it. So yes, the government. Well, if they've got a majority in the House of Commons, they can do literally what they want. And the other thing they can do on a to, to fill some time is they can suddenly get some minister to give a, a statement for an hour on any old topic, basically just to fill up time. And it's no mistake; it's it's not a mistake that the word for doing that, talking a bill out, is called filibustering, which comes from the Spanish for
0: pirate. But it is also true, isn't it, that Lady Hale and the Supreme Court decided that. Boris Johnson had unlawfully prorogued Parliament. And in fact, unless I'm misremembering this or misinterpreting it, Parliament was then officially unprorogued. It had never been prorogued because he hadn't been, it was decided he hadn't been entitled Boris Johnson to prorogue it.
1: Yeah, he lied to the Queen to secure the prorogation. It was an illegal prorogation and it was done for partisan purposes around Brexit. Um, And then we had a general election a few weeks later. No, no, you're quite right. So so there are limits to ministerial power, but they're very limited limits. And indeed, in recent years, I mean, it's a repeated refrain from conservatives like Jacob Rees-Mogg that the courts are intervening in politics too much. But actually, we in the UK have hardly any checks and balances on government power. Let me give you another thing that I talk about quite a bit in the book. Um, They've invented all these new discretionary funds like the Towns Fund and the Leveling Up Fund and so on. You only get any money for any, out of any of these funds if the local MP backs it. And it's a competition between lots of different um, local authorities that are bidding for this amount of money. The Towns Fund is meant to be part of Leveling Up, so it's meant to be going to the poorest towns in the country. But even the, the cross-party committee in the House that's looked at this said it doesn't do that at all because... Some of the some of the wealthiest towns in the country have received money from it. And that's because it's a discretionary fund. I think it's
0: completely corrupt. I should say that if Boris Johnson were here today and part of this podcast, he would say that he did not lie to the Queen.
1: Would he? Would he even bother now? I don't know. <laughs> well he'd also say that he didn't lie to Parliament, but Parliament found by a very substantial majority. I think it's 254 to 7 that he had. So
0: Chris which do you think is or find in your experience to be the most important part of your job as an MP? Is it the work you do with and for your constituents? Or is it the work that you do in the chamber and in your parliamentary office? And of course, presumably a lot of the work that you do in your parliamentary office and some of the work that you do in the chamber is about your constituents. But you, you kind of get what I mean. Is it is it the face-to-face interaction or sometimes remote interaction with your constituents, or it, or is it the the stuff you do on the parliamentary estate?
1: So I don't think it's either or. I mean, you probably guessed I was going to say this. I think there's it's it's, there's several strands that have to go together. So you know the assaults on emergency workers bill that I introduced that which was all through Parliament, of course, parliamentary process. That was the winning suggestion that I took to kids in uh, in the, and to people in the Rhondda. They got to vote on which bill I should introduce. But, I mean, you know, the casework, Mrs. Jones's drains or everybody in Pentra being flooded in Storm Dennis or the the, the, the coal tip falling into the river in, in Thailand—that that is all the bread and butter of the job. Fifty years ago, no MP would have done any of that. Uh, I think Chips Shannon in his, in his diaries notes whenever he has a single letter from a constituent. And on one day, he's completely shocked to get three. You know, we get, I don't know, 50 emails an hour from constituents. But there is a danger that if you if, if you do that to the exclusion of doing the parliamentary stuff, y- you lose an opportunity, and you fail to do your duty because losing opportunity. One of the things I've I've been campaigning on for a long time is brain injuries. That stemmed from men in the Ronda who played lots of rugby, suffering concussions and suffering from depression and early onset dementia, which I na- we now know was probably related to their rugby playing. So I've been I've taken. Um, I, I bang on and on about it in Parliament. I'm chairing a group for the government on creating a national strategy for brain injury. I think that's meshing the two together. So that's so if you don't use Parliament properly, then that's a wasted opportunity. But also, if you don't if you don't take part in the legislation, if you don't scrutinise it properly and go line by line, I'm sorry, what what do you really mean in this sentence? Then I think you've failed in your duty. And if I just give one instance, which I mentioned in the book which about the Mental Health Act. I was just a backbench MP, but uh, I was on the bill committee. So we're going through it line by line by line. And there was a big row about what should you do about a, a patient with men- serious mental health problems, personality disorders, which are um, incurable, but ma- might be treatable. Uh, should, you, should the state be allowed to effectively imprison somebody in that situation? And we had to get the wording precisely right. So that you balance the the rights of the, of the individual, the patient, and the rights of society not to face, you know, violent attackers on the street and so on. Um, now, lots of people say lobbying is immoral and terrible, but actually, for me, I'm not a medical expert, just like you said earlier, you're not. So I thought, well, I'm going to get all the medical, all, all the experts, including the pharmaceutical companies, the British Medical Association, the, the nurses union and and so on, get them all in and um, mental health charities to to take me through it all. And they were all lobbyists. In the end, I had to make the decision about what I was going to table. And it was my amendments that ended up carrying the day and went through Parliament and is part of the law now.
0: How do you find the time to do the sort of things you've just described, look after constituents or respond to constituents' concerns, do interviews with people like me, write a book, chair the, the Standards Committee, have a, have, have a husband, have a private life? How, how, how do you fit it all in?
1: And I'm on the Foreign Affairs Committee. Um, well, I've got, I'm quite high on the, uh, I don't know what the spectrum is for not not liking being bored. Um, but I'm very high on that spectrum. I have a phenomenal team in my office in the Rhonda who do most of the casework. I mean, often without ever reference to me. And we we use me when we need to escalate it, if you see what I mean. And they're very good. And I wake relatively early. I do writing early in the morning and on trains and things like that.
0: How do you split your time between London and Wales?
1: Uh, it varies every week. Uh, you know, I was there all weekend. I'm here. I was in the Rhonda all weekend. I'm I'm here now in London because we're meant to be having a meeting with the Uzbek foreign minister later on this morning that I think he's going to cancel. And I... So I, home is the Rhonda. It's Porth in the Rhonda. It's where my mother-in-law lives as well but quite often I'll end up being more in London because Parliament is Monday to Thursday.
0: What's it like working on the parliamentary estate? We hear a lot about the culture in Parliament. but what have you experienced it? Well,
1: uh, over the years, I mean, a lot of staff say it's horrible um, for several reasons. One, because you can be very isolated just sitting in an MP's office. You might see the MP for 20 minutes in the day because they're in the chamber or off in committee or wherever and you're just stuck in an office on your own. I think, you know, as some of the sexual harassment cases have shown over the last few years, and the bullying cases, it can be quite a frightening and unnerving place to work. Incidentally, I mean, the fact that we do now have an independent complaints and grievance scheme, the first parliament in the world to have such a confidential scheme, is a good thing. Um, And it means that we are tackling things which historically would have just been brushed under the Pugin carpet. Again, I write about this, but um, I mean, in my time, I've seen... Especially in the division lobbies, you know, older men, when we're voting at 11 o'clock at night, they've been in the bar slapping women's bottoms, hugging them closer than they wanted. I've had five men over the years who've grabbed me in a way that I didn't want to be grabbed in the, in, in the again, in the division lobbies, always in the division lobbies for some reason, partly maybe because there are no cameras in there. So, yeah, it, uh, and, but so the parliamentary estate, it can be quite frightening. I guess
0: as the chair of the standards committee clearly there's well, there must be pressure on you to be sort of purer than pure and you don't you don't always get it right I think it's fair to say I'm, I'm not, I, I'm not I, I'm, I agree with that but, I, I agree
1: with I that I mean your,
0: your parliamentary language might not always be up to scratch for example or is that unfair Uh
1: look I've been in more scrapes than most people and you know there have been occasions when I've got things wrong and incidentally I should say you asked about lying earlier. I think there is a difference between somebody inadvertently... I mean, I know this is a much-used word in Parliament, but inadvertently saying the wrong thing. Um, and, and and it's a shame that we, it's only ministers who have the right to correct the record, and that should be extended to all MPs, because and we should do it more often.
0: Can I just ask you an awkward question? Because I, I sometimes feel I need to ask awkward questions. Um, do. But I ask it to you because of your elevated an important position. Do you look back at your own expenses in the past and have any regrets?
1: I have a regret that the whole system was as it was. Um, I, uh, a lot of the stories that are written are not quite as accurate as I would like them to be, which is irritating, but I have to live with that. I now am just about the cheapest MP when it comes to accommodation, I think. we We basically pay all our or nearly everything here for ourselves so I'm paying for everything in my constituency and here I, that's not me boasting it's just factually true but yes I wish the whole system had been very different and that um that you know we we changed interestingly enough one of the first votes I had was in I think 2002 and there was a there was a row from the older members who'd been MPs for longer who felt thought that the pay rise for MPs was not enough so they decided instead to vote for pretty much doubling the allowance for accommodation. And I voted against it. Um, but then, you know, you could say, but yeah, then you took advantage of it.
0: Would you abolish the House of Lords?
1: No, I would make it elected. Not on the same basis as the House of Commons. Uh, you have to lay down what the what the um, precise powers of each house would be, because otherwise you end up with terrible gridlock. And it should be a, re- a revising chamber, not a... Uh, not an initiating chamber, and it should have many fewer n- members. It's got 780 or something at the moment, which is only the Chinese um, uh, Congress of, of the people has more, I think. And and interestingly, what's happened recently is that they, they used to have a rule that they didn't do finance and they didn't do foreign affairs and they didn't do anything that was already done in the Commons, and now they've got a communications committee, which is, does almost exactly the same as the culture committee, They've got a Treasury Committee, which looks at financial issues. They've got a uh, a Foreign Affairs and Defence Committee. So they are just mirroring the Commons now, and that's a nonsense. So, yes, I would elect it uh, by thirds, and I'd have 180 members or 250 members or something like that.
0: Final question. When you're not working and you're still not wanting to be bored, what do you do? What excites you? How do you get your fun? What are your passions? What are your interests?
1: Uh, I swim... Uh, pretty much every Friday evening in the Rhonda, Um I go to the gym, I run, I've done three marathons for charity, I love reading novels, I go to the movies quite a bit, we went to Barbie on Saturday but we haven't been to um, the nuclear war one, Oppenheimer, and I go to the theatre quite a lot, when I was young I was in the National Youth Theatre so I, I love the theatre, I like seeing live performance, there's nothing quite as thrilling as Um, those kind of magic moments.
0: Do you still say your prayers?
1: Um, Well, I don't say, uh, dear God, make sure that Vox don't win in the Spanish elections, or please, you know, make sure the Ukrainians um, are safe tonight. I don't, that's not the kind, that's not the kind of prayer I ever made, because I never believed in that kind of interventionist God, because that seems like a cruelty. Um, But I do do the, make me a better person kind of prayer, because as I've said in many, many interviews, I'm not a particularly good person, and I find it ironic that I'm chair of the committee on standards. Um, so,
0: but you do care. Of, you, you do care passionately about standards, don't you?
1: I do, and and I and I care when I I've, I've managed to mess it up as well, and that really winds me. And then I have days of guilt when I don't sleep very well, and all the rest. And I think, oh dear, how am I going to put that right? And especially because if you're chair of the committee on standards, you kind of feel like there's a kind of target on your forehead. Um, to every journalist in the land. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, it's true. I, I've 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 had to correct the record. I've had to apologise to the House. I've had to do pretty much everything. And maybe, I mean, there have been lots of stories in the media this year where basically it's felt as if people have been on trial for their lives in the court of public opinion, which is in permanent session and has no rules of evidence. And so I, I also want what we do in, in Parliament to be fair in the way it treats MPs. And and I'd say about the book that if somebody's going to read it thinking, oh, this is just going to be a list of how terrible, and they're all wasters and losers and corrupt and dodgy and perverts and all the rest of it, it doesn't say that. In fact, I look around the chamber half the time and I see people who've done amazing things from different political parties. You know, Andrea Leadsom I disagree with on nearly everything, but she's done lots of good work on early years Diana Johnson, all the stuff on infected blood, you know, you, I could just go around a chamber and there's dozens of people who've done amazing things. So I want, uh, and I, one of the things that I'm very keen on when I was preparing to be a priest, you know, once I'd been ordained, I was doing my first, I was preparing my first couple for marriage. And I was a young gay man, just getting in touch with his sexuality, not very good on commitment. And there I was going to explain how to have a happy marriage <laughs> You know, a couple who I was going to marry in church on the Saturday afternoon. And I said to my boss, um, Michael Roberts, the vicar, I said, what can I say to them uh, about, you know, being parents, for instance? And he said, well, the most important thing is don't load them up with guilt. Don't tell them that they've got to be good parents. Tell them they've got to be good enough. They might just manage that. And that's kind of the whole my what I think about Parliament and standards I don't want people to be perfect. That's nonsense. We've all got feet of clay. Um, but I do want us to be good enough. And that's not preachy. It's just, I say that to myself as well. We just want to be good enough.
0: Chris Bryant, thank you so much for answering my 20 questions. I have not realised have done 20. No, we have. Well, we've done. I think we had a bonus one or two as well.
1: All right. <laughs> <laughs>